thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, a Naked Scientist exclusive. We're putting a brand new type of oven to the test. Can it really, as its inventors claim, roast a chicken from raw in just 35 minutes? Stay tuned to find out. Plus, the brave scientists who've attached cameras to great white sharks in the name of science. And what does a black hole really look like? I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. To begin this week, scientists have just announced the first images you've probably seen in the news of a black hole. And with us to explain how this was done and what it means is astronomer Carolyn Crawford. So what actually have they imaged, Carolyn, and where did they see this? Well, just first to stress, it's not actually an image of a black hole. It's the closest we can get. But you're seeing effectively the silhouette of the event horizon around a black hole. So you're sort of more or less sitting in the shadow it casts towards us. So that hole that you see, I mean, if you look at the image, it's this beautiful bright annulus with a dark circle in the middle. That's not the black hole. That's a shadow of the event horizon. It looks like a, a bit of a bagel in the sky, doesn't it? It's a yes. long way away, though, isn't it? It's 55 million light years away. So, and it sits right at the centre of a colossal giant elliptical galaxy called M87. And we've already weighed the mass of the black hole. It's been six and a half billion times the mass of our sun. How do you know that? We know that because a black hole, you can't see it, but you can measure its gravitational effect on matter around it. And in this case, it's been ionised gas and stars in the vicinity. You look at how they're moving. You can work out what gravity they're responding to. You can weigh the black hole. One thing that has come out of this that's nice is those estimates match very nicely the size of the event horizon we see here. So there's a consistent story about the mass within this black hole. How were the images assembled or prepared? The images were taken with something called the Event Horizon Telescope, which is where you mock up a radio dish the size of the Earth by linking together eight widely separated radio telescopes. And the reason you do that is that if you increase the effective diameter of your telescope, you get a very good what we call angular resolution. That's the ability to see details. And if you increase the size of your radio dish to that of the Earth, well, you can get a resolution that you could detect a grapefruit on the surface of the Moon. And that is ideally matched to the event horizon around the supermassive black hole in M87 and also the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy called Sagittarius A star. Yes, I was interested that they chose to report on the bigger one that was a lot further away, though, Mm. than the one in our own galaxy. Do you think they're saving the best till last? Do you think they've got some big reveal up their sleeves? Uh, Well, the... The nearer one, and nearer, I mean, it's still 26,000 light years away. The thing about Sagittarius A star is 4 million times the mass of our sun. So it's a thousand times smaller, it's a thousand times nearer, but it's also much more variable. Changes in brightness on a much faster time scale. So actually correlating all the data from all these eight different telescopes is a lot harder work. So there will be a big reveal. They're just being more careful and they're taking longer to do it. And what do you think they will do next then? Because now we can image black holes. Will they just turn their devices on as many black holes as possible? Well, first of all, there are improvements. I mean, obviously, we're going to look at more supermassive black holes, different ones, but you can improve the algorithms to try and sharpen the images. We can observe at other wavelengths, try and improve the angular resolution, the detail we can see and see fine structure around the black hole. And if we really wanted to be adventurous, we could perhaps increase in the long future the diameter of this potential radio telescope, put a radio dish on the moon. Again, get to far more detail and perhaps see changes in real time of how this material is accreting onto the black hole. Almost get a movie of this accretion as it happens. 
We've had a whole slew of questions on our forum, nakedscientist.com. This person says, how many kinds of black hole are there? Do they come in different flavours? Oh, yes, they're definitely different flavours of black holes. There are two kinds that we regularly observe. You have the ones that we call them stellar-sized, but in fact they're probably tens times the mass of our sun, and they'll go from about 10 solar masses up to about 60 solar masses. And they're the ones that you find like in the spiral arms of galaxies. They come from the death of stars. But then you get the behemoths that live at the centres of galaxies. And these are what we call the supermassive black holes. And these are the ones that can be millions, if not billions times the mass of our sun. Those are the astrophysical black holes we actually observe. There are predictions that there could be something called primordial black holes that may be formed either during or just after the Big Bang. But we don't observe those yet. And so that's more speculation. That question came from Mad Atheist on our forum, who also says, how many of these black holes involve a singularity? Do they all have one? Is that an obligatory thing with a black <laughs> yeah, hole? Yeah, that's what defines it as being a black hole. The singularity is where you have something that goes to infinite value. And we're talking about something that's basically infinite density. So by definition, all black holes are the singularity. And what happens, he is asking, when you get to the event horizon, to the speed of light? Does light inside a black hole change speed or is it still running at the speed of light? Who knows? Once things goes over the event horizon, our physics break down. We, I couldn't speculate. Geordie F wonders, is there any way we can know anything related to the mass distribution inside the black hole, i.e. over the event horizon? This goes back to the point that the, the person was asking about knowing about the speed of light or not inside the black hole. I guess the answer is going to be no. The answer is no. The event horizon is literally the horizon beyond which we can see no events. And we can do the thought experiments, but it's completely locked away. Anything that's going on beyond that boundary is completely locked away to us at the minute. There's, there's no way we can work it efficiently mathematically or observationally. Were you excited when you saw the initial papers come out? Very excited. It, the data were taken two years ago, so everybody's just been on tenterhooks for this image that we knew was coming. So it's very satisfying. Thank you very much indeed for coming and summarising that for us, Carolyn. Carolyn Crawford from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. And in fact, we're going to put a longer version of our conversation between me and Carolyn on our website in which she answers some of the questions that you've also been sending in about this topic, and there were lots of them. And that's going to be at nakedscientist.com slash short. Now, one in three of us will develop cancer at some point in our lives. And thankfully, in recent years, treatments have improved dramatically. In fact, we can now hold many tumour types in check for considerable periods of time. But the therapies that do this are extremely costly and they can have significant side effects, which is why researchers are particularly keen to make better use of a free natural resource available to all of us, our immune systems. The immune system doesn't usually target cancers because it recognises the cells as part of the body. But as Joshua Brody has been finding, with the right signals injected, like a vaccine, into a tumour, it's possible to persuade immune cells otherwise. We refer to it as in situ vaccination. All it really means is we are making the vaccine at the site of the tumour by injecting immune stimulants directly into the tumour to try to trick the body into thinking that this cancer is like an infection so they can learn the lesson at that tumour site and then travel throughout the body to eliminate tumour cells wherever these uh, immune system cells can find them. And what do you put in? When you say you, you put in immune stimulants, what are they and what are they actually stimulating? Sure. It's a great question and it requires uh, one key bit of background, which is the 2011 Nobel Prize was awarded for this crucial immune cell called the dendritic cell. If we think of most of the immune cells, we call them T-cells as soldiers of the immune army. The dendritic cell is the general of that immune army. It instructs the soldiers who to attack and eliminate. The first immune stimulant that we inject into the tumor is something called FLT3L, FLT3L, and we administer FLT3L directly into a tumor. We bring many dendritic cells to that tumor so they can start to see what the tumor features, we call them antigens, are that we want to recognize. So that's a bit like you're taking a war analogy, sounding the bugle at the site of the tumor so that these dendritic cells, which have the ability to marshal immune effectors, these T-cells, they'll come in, but, but they've got to have something to, to work with, haven't they? So how do you get the dendritic cells to then pay attention to the tumour cells? 
Sure. So the second ingredient is something called low-dose radiotherapy. It's basically just a very small dose of radiation to that tumor, which kills a few tumor cells, releases their antigens, and those dendritic cells then gobble up the antigens, so they will be able to present them to the immune soldiers, to the T-cells. It will go even beyond a bugle. It will be a bugle plus a PA system. And then ingredient three is another immune stimulant that we inject directly into the tumor, and it's called a TLR, a toll-like receptor agonist. And it activates those dendritic cells to convey that these tumor antigens are like an infection. These are something that we should attack. And those dendritic cells then instruct the rest of the immune soldiers on what to recognize and what to eliminate throughout the body. What's the evidence this works, though? We, in this paper, describe the insight 2 vaccine in two very different contexts. We describe it in the lab using animal models where we really prove exactly how it is working, and then we brought it into an early-phase uh, clinical trial for patients with advanced-stage non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and we've had some patients with partial and complete remissions of their cancer, and those remissions have been going on for months or years uh, for some of these patients. Now, so far, you've talked to me about attacking non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. These are cancers of some of the white blood cells. Could this same strategy, though, be used for other types of cancer? For instance, melanoma, very common cancer of the skin. Could you treat that with this? We believe it would work for most types of cancer, if not every type. In the lab, we actually have studied melanoma, where we showed pretty similar and very good results. And really, our next direction is to bring this into a clinical trial for patients. In fact, that follow-up trial has already just opened this past month, and that trial will treat patients with lymphoma or breast cancer or head and neck cancer. Sounds terrific. But, and there's always a but with these things, isn't there? One has to be cautious because is there not a risk, given that there will be some healthy, normal cells and antigens in these tumours, that the immune system could begin to respond to perfectly normal signals on normal cells as well as the bad markers signalling cancer cells, and you might end up with an autoimmune disease where the immune system turns on itself? Chris, absolutely. In fact, that's the primary concern with all these types of immune therapies. As we push the immune system, we might possibly push it too hard, and it could attack both cancer and some healthy cells as well. What you say is exactly correct. In a very small percentage of patients, that could happen with some of these immunotherapies. With the vaccine approach, we think there's at least some more specificity. But you're right, there could possibly still be healthy Uh, cell antigens uh, within that tumor. We can only say so far that we've done this in a number of patients, and we have not seen that so far. But you're right, we definitely have to be wary of side effects as we we push ahead, certainly. A terrific story. Let's hope it works out. Joshua Brody there, he's at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, and his study has just come out in the journal Nature Medicine. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals, anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. On the way, what a great white shark sees in the underwater realm and... I've got here a raw chicken and normally this would take about an hour and a half to cook in a conventional oven. I'm now going to open the door of this new oven of ours. I'm going to roast it for you today in just 35 minutes without using microwaves and using significantly less energy than a conventional oven. We believe that this is going to do for domestic ovens what Dyson did for vacuum cleaners. Yep, you heard right. Exclusively here on The Naked Scientists, we're putting to the test a brand new oven design which claims to perfectly roast a raw chicken in 35 minutes. So set your stopwatches. But first, we're going back into space now because the results of an ambitious study to explore how the human body is affected by flight has just been announced. Twelve teams from various universities across America have been looking at cells, genetics and general physiology. And in one case, they looked at something rather special. Izzy Clark. Three, two, 
Fancy a trip to space? The years of physical and mental training, the waiting, will you be chosen for a mission? Then you get strapped into a rocket, blasted off into space and live on the International Space Station for months. Most of the time, astronauts are up on the ISS for up to six months. But in March 2015, an American astronaut called Scott Kelly was one of two people selected for a year-long mission to space. And there was something special about Scott that grabbed scientists' attention. The idea for the study came from Scott Kelly himself. Uh, he knew he was uh, scheduled to go on the one-year mission and approached NASA and was like, hey, you know, I've got a twin brother that's going to be here, and we've both been astronauts. Uh, would it be cool to, to study us since we're twins and we have the same genetic sequence? And NASA said, yes, that would be fantastic. That's Lindsay Rosardi. She was a part of a team at the Johns Hopkins University that looked into the genetic information of Scott and his twin Mark. The key factor being that, as an identical twin, their DNA is the same. And this was the beginning of a mammoth study to explore the impacts on the human body of life in space compared to that back on Earth. Lindsay and her supervisor, Andrew Feinberg, were interested in something called methylation, which is a process that goes on in your DNA. What DNA methylation actually is, it's a chemical tag that gets deposited on your DNA. And it doesn't change your DNA as far as changing the sequence or anything like that. But what it does do is it can regulate gene expression and how they're turned on and off. Now, say your genetic code is a cookbook. If you take one single instruction, that's a gene, and that's akin to a single recipe. Now, these methylation markers are like putting a mark on that recipe to say, reduce your portion size. So if there are a lot of these methylation markers on a recipe, i.e. your gene, it essentially reduces the amount it's making and ultimately stops a gene from doing its job, otherwise known as being turned off. So for instance, if you have a lot of these modifications near the beginning of a gene, it typically results in that gene being turned off. If there's not much methylation around, genes tend to be turned on or expressed. And so what we hypothesized was that we would see big changes in Scott during his time in space that we wouldn't see in Mark. But that's not exactly what they found. In fact, Lindsay and the team found no long-lasting major differences between Scott and Mark's genetic code. Mark actually had more variation globally in his DNA methylation levels than Scott did. And we were surprised by this at first, but then we started thinking harder about it. And it's like, well, of course, Scott is in an isolated environment on the space station for a whole year. His diet is limited. His environment's not changing much. Whereas Mark on Earth could travel, he could eat whatever he wanted. Given that, it's not as surprising that we didn't see as much variation in Scott. Now, what is interesting is that we saw genes that were involved in inflammation and in stress response having altered methylation, and we didn't see changes at those same genes in Mark. But how can you compare two people needing fresh blood samples when one of them is orbiting 400 kilometres above you? It was actually a logistical nightmare. What we had to do was coordinate sample collections with uh, scheduled visits to the space station by the Soyuz. So whenever they would get a resupply, Scott or one of his crewmates would have to draw his blood and put it right on the rocket to come back to Kazakhstan. And then in Kazakhstan, there'd be a plane waiting to take it to Houston. And then in Houston, it'd get on a truck to the lab and somebody would have to be at the lab, whether that be, you know, noon or three o'clock in the morning waiting on the sample so that they could separate those cell populations that we needed, freeze them down, and then ship them out to the labs. So it was quite a feat. And I think one of the great accomplishments of the study is actually getting all of that logistics worked out so that, you know, this is how we can do things in future. Especially in a future that may involve human spaceflight to Mars. Definitely. I mean, I think if you're going to plan space missions to Mars, then you need to be prepared. Any information that we gather on the potential risks of this longer duration space flight is going to be beneficial. And you're going to have to take into account when you plan longer duration missions. Because it's interesting, too, is like this was the first time an astronaut had been in space for over a year, at least for us. We actually saw a lot of our changes happening in that last six months of flight. And so it really is the longer duration that we're starting to see effects. 
So in this case, you could say it really is rocket science. Lindsay Rosardi there, ending that report by Izzy Clark. And incidentally, the study documenting that work has just been published in the journal Science. So from space to the oceans now, and great white sharks are iconic animals, but they're also ones that we know very little about. And they're on the watch list of threatened species that conservationists internationally are trying to save, despite the misleading portrayal of the animals in some films. But for conservation efforts to be successful, we need to learn as much as we can about where these animals go, how they hunt and what sorts of environments that they actively seek out or avoid. Now we're a step closer to doing that. With cameras that temporarily latch onto the dorsal fin, researchers have got their first glimpses of the Great White's underwater world. Oliver Jewell. So what we've effectively done is put camera tags on white sharks in one of the first ever studies to do that. And it's part of a longer term study where we've used lots of different techniques to study these animals and each filling in a new part of the picture. But this one is really quite a big chunk of the puzzle, which we just didn't see before. One always gets a bit nervous when people talk about big chunks of things and great white sharks. But <laughs> yes. where were you studying them? So this was all done in South Africa off Hansby, which is in the Western Cape. Just offshore, there's a, a really interesting island system. It's called Dyer Island. And the seal colony is actually on Giza Rock, where there's fifty to 60,000 Cape fur seals, depending on the time of year. And it attracts what was the largest population of great white sharks anywhere in the world. So how did you actually get cameras onto these things? Because these are big animals for a start, aren't they? Yes. And they're not known for being particularly friendly necessarily. So how did you solve both of these problems? I worked for many years on a, on a cage diving vessel and, and we kind of use the same technique. You um, put a bit of fish in the water and you use either a seal-shaped decoy or a piece of bait and the shark swims up towards it. While the shark's looking at this piece of bait or a decoy, someone will lean over the side of the boat with a pole and a clamp and clamp these tags to the fin of the shark. When you say clamp, because one mm -hmm. of the worries that marine biologists and the wider scientific community have is that we don't injure these animals when we tag them. Mm. So how do you satisfy the necessity to study but not harm? Well, with these clamps, they're corrodible. So they'll fit onto the dorsal fin, but after a set amount of time, the tag pops off and comes to the surface so we can retrieve it and then the clamp falls apart and falls off the fin. So we don't want to leave any part on the animal beyond a week or so. And as the, the animal's swimming, so you've got video capture of where it's going and what it's seeing, is that being stored on the camera device so that when it does resurface and you retrieve it, that's when you get the data back? Yeah, exactly. We don't get anything if we don't get the tag back. So it's always a big, uh, a big risk when you put this expensive piece of equipment out in the ocean and then you have to hope that it films something good. It's also got a high-resolution motion sensor inside that's a bit like a Fitbit. And so every second, there's 40 pieces of information going in on the heading of the animal in three dimensions, the depth it's swimming at, as well as the video. And then when it comes to the surface, we've got either a satellite tag or a VHF tag on it so we can hopefully track it down. And if not, we write our email address and hope that somebody uh, emails us. What was it like when you look at the footage and you, you were able to, to pursue these animals on their day-to-day -day business? Any surprises? What, what did you see? Oh, well, I mean, for the most part, the animals are just swimming. We've got to get good visibility too. Often it's really murky and the shark is just sitting there swimming along and, and you don't see anything exciting. But just every so often, something will catch the shark's eye and it'll start moving. And we had one where the water was really clear and the shark was kicking up towards the surface. And I was trying to see, what's it going for? It must be going for a seal or something. And then it gradually slows and you look up and you see the surface and you see above the surface, there's a seagull flying and this shark just tracks it. For whatever reason, the shark must have had a look at the seagull and decided I'm going to go and swim up and see what that is. So in some respects, it's not just telling us about where the animals go, it can also give us useful information about their behaviour and not just how they react to, to stimuli underwater either. Exactly that. I mean, we can see um, different proportions of time that these animals might be spending doing one behaviour versus another. We can see how much they move up and down the water column and how many times they beat their tail uh, per minute. 
So we can see we see a lot more of these animals' day-to-day lives than we would be able to with a traditional tag that might give you a position every week or so. And what are you going to do next? So what we're doing at the moment is building quite a large data set where we're putting these tags or similar on white sharks in South Africa, in California, and possibly in other places as well. And then we really will be able to make a global comparison in their foraging patterns. And we'll be able to look at things like how they change over time uh, as they get larger and their prey preference will change, for instance. We'll be able to track how they do that in terms of activity, in terms of their foraging aggregations uh, in many places across the world. Sounds amazing. Oliver Jewell, he's from Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia, and that work has just been published in the journal Biology Letters. And if you'd like to find out more, all the transcripts and references for the stories can be found on our website, nakedscientist.com. Incidentally, we'd like to tack a little mailbox section into this part of the show where we reflect on your thoughts, comments and questions. So if you have any feedback for us, why not leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or you can send any questions or thoughts into us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll check them out. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This week, it's food fantastic. Greener cooking and fewer food miles. Hopefully, because we're looking at cooking with a conscience. Now, it's not every day that you get the chance to interview professional chefs in a brand new restaurant. And what's more, a restaurant which has installed an experimental oven that we're revealing for the first time here on the programme, and which the creators claim can revolutionise cooking. So, will it work? Chris and I set its inventor the rather grand challenge of roasting a raw chicken in just 35 minutes, and it should be about halfway cooked by now. So let's meet the scientist behind the oven, so smart it literally has its own PhD student, and the two chefs putting sustainability at the heart of their new venture. Hello, my name is Lawrence Butler. Hello, my name is Alex Rushmer, and we are at Vanderlyle in Cambridge. Vanderlyle is a brand new restaurant opened by myself and Lawrence, and we are a primarily vegetable-focused, sustainable restaurant in the centre of Cambridge on Mill Road. And standing next to Alex is... I'm Mark Williamson. I teach chemical engineering at the University in Cambridge, and I'm also the founder of Cambridge Oven Innovation. It's a spin-out company from the university, and we are developing a, a brand new, exciting domestic oven. Now, I know that fellows at the University of Cambridge are, are fond of fine dining and fine cuisine. Perhaps that's why you're in this fine restaurant, but you know, why are you really here? Because we're doing some exciting food trials with Alex and Lawrence, discovering new ways to cook food uh, using this new technology. We have an oven which cooks food in fundamentally different ways to conventional ovens, and it uses substantially less energy. Now, Alex, you run a serious business, serious venture. You've been on MasterChef. What did you think when he came to you and said, I've got, a, I've got an oven which is going to reinvent the way we do cooking? Initially a little bit sceptical, I suppose, but that was changed pretty quickly once we saw the oven in action. It's, it's very rare that you get to see something in such, a, such an early stage of development and something that can so fundamentally change the way that we do things in the kitchen. So it was super exciting. The, the immediate results that we saw impressed us so much that we, we couldn't help but be involved. So you've actually installed one here. And are you going to knock out your daytime nosh on this to to see really how it performs? Is that the idea? You're sort of doing a clinical trial for an oven? We're going to be doing a lot of recipe testing for the oven so that we can uh, eventually have a database of things that we've figured out exactly what the best way to cook using it is so that we can have that for the end user as well as a, a resource really. Chefs love their toys, they love their gadgets and they love anything that makes their lives easier, makes the processes quicker. Given our uh, fairly fundamental approach and focus on sustainability, anything that uses less energy is always going to be a bonus for us. You've given these guys some shares? Uh, We have indeed, yes. They are stakeholders in the business. Well they do say that the, the proof is in the eating. We have a chicken roasting. Are you confident? Yes, reasonably so. We've cooked a lot of chickens recently and uh, we think we know how to do it really quickly and really energy efficiently. In fact, we're going to do uh, Yorkshire puddings for you today as well. My favourite. Thank you, Mark. 
Okay. I'm looking forward to trying this. Now, no roast dinner is complete without some veggies. So are you going to let me loose on your knives? Well, it's not my knife, so I'm more than happy to, to let you use it. But Lawrence <laughs> might not be so keen. <laughs> if so I'm never, closely supervised, never how touch, about that? Never touch another chef's knife. I think that's one of the, one of the rules of the kitchen. Um, <laughs> I think we can let that go in this case. I think we can let it go, <laughs> yeah. But our menu at the moment, our opening menu, is entirely vegetarian. We have no meat, no fish on there whatsoever. In fact, this chicken that is currently roasting in the oven is the first piece of meat that we've we've allowed in our kitchen so we've rocked the boat a little bit then uh, you have a little bit but you know i think that's that's part of that's all part of the fun i'm not saying that we will we will never cook meat or fish in this kitchen though there will be times when we have found a farmer that we can work with directly who who farms ethically uh, ethically farmed meat and sustainable meat uh, and that's what we're putting front and center of, of the moment restaurant. we were asked quite simply we're just enjoying cooking vegetables and at this time of year as well we're heading into the spring we're in the middle of almost in the middle of spring and the produce that we are working with we are so fortunate it's incredible we're working directly with an organic local farmer who just honestly provides the best vegetables i've ever tasted the idea came to us actually reasonably quickly about 18 months ago i uh, we we cooked together at the hole in the wall in little wilbram just outside of cambridge that was your previous restaurant that was my previous restaurant so six very enjoyable but very long years both went our separate ways we parted company amicably i spent some time cooking in various mountainous regions of the world in switzerland and ethiopia and it gave us time to reflect on what we wanted from a restaurant experience both as a diner and as a as a restaurateur we knew that we wanted to to work on a sustainable level for us that means two things it means from an environmental perspective but also sustainability from a personal perspective as well so we only work four days a week we have a very small team, all of whom are fully invested in the philosophy of what, we're, of what we're attempting to do. The biggest thing we can do to diminish our environmental impact is focus much less on the cooking of, of animal proteins and focus much more on the cooking of vegetables and, and fruits and root vegetables. As we're here, I cannot help but ask, I've got two pro chefs in front of me, can I have a tiny masterclass on chopping some veg? Of course you can. I think we can organise that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My chopping skills leave a lot to be desired. I'm going to have to put that out now. Full disclosure. Please help me. Okay. So I I suppose lesson number one is keep your fingers out of the way. Okay. So we're one of the, I I suppose, day one at at cookery school, you're taught about the claw. That's day two. Day one's all about eggs. (laughs) 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 Yeah, day two, the the claw, it's uh, just a technique that you use to keep the ends of your fingers away from the the blade at all time, so that no matter how quickly you're chopping, you're not going to cut the end of your finger off. So most people, when they first pick up a knife, they use what what you refer to as maybe a tennis, tennis racket grip. So you're holding it as you would a tennis racket, right on the handle. But that doesn't give you a whole lot of control. It certainly doesn't give you the control that you need for up and down or even side to side. So we'll readjust, readjust the grip so you're, you've got the hilt of the knife in the back of your hand and you're almost holding the top of the blade almost as if you were a pencil. It's more like you're playing a violin or a cello bow or something like that. As a complete non-musician, I'll have to take your, <laughs> take your word on that. So, so we'll, start off, we'll start off by getting the grip right. Okay bit more like that so if you just tuck that finger in a little like that and it should feel as if you've got much more control over the blade it does, it does. yes i've this been chopping chris i've been chopping wrong all my life <laughs> what i want you to do is hold the celery in your left hand so you steady it in your left hand but make sure you keep the tips of your fingers tucked in and then what you can do is use the part of your finger between your two knuckles mm-hmm as a guide for the blade. Ah, so the blade actually rubs up against your fingers each That's time. That's exactly it. So you just shimmy that part of your hand back. The flat of the blade is parallel to the flat of that first part of your finger. And that should give you the control that you need without any risk at all of chopping the ends of your fingers ah, or your nails. Okay. They're not as even as yours, Alex. (laughs) 
That's quite. That's okay. You can work on the work on the evenness later on. Well, it's all very well. We've chopped. <laughs> I've chopped one stick of celery. <laughs> if we're going to have a roast dinner, we're going to need to get them cooking. So. What exactly are you prepping veggie-wise, and how are you going to cook them? We're going to cook some purple-spraying broccoli with some of the shoots from that uh, as well. And we're going to, first we're going to start it out with a bit of time in the pan, and then we're going to pop it in the oven just to finish off. I actually learned a lot from that lesson, Chris. Yeah, me too. I've been, I've been chopping ever since. I've chopped up loads of stuff. And now they've told me the secret of how you don't chop your fingers off. You can go so much quicker. I've been in awe of that for years and wondered how they did it. And now we know. So thank you, Lawrence, for showing us how to chop properly. There are a few other tips, actually, from the pros. One is have a stable surface for chopping. Another is using a sharp knife can actually be safer than a blunt knife because you need to work harder with a blunt knife. And of course, wash your hands before you're doing any food prep. Absolutely. Always important to have clean hands. Now, it is, of course, all very well going out and eating at an ethical restaurant once in a while. But most of the time, you actually eat at home, of course. And where the food that we put in the pan actually comes from is the key to food sustainability. The concept of eating seasonally when local produce is at its best is nothing new. And of course, eating local seasonal food can cut down the food miles. But actually getting hold of locally grown produce directly isn't always easy, especially for big organisations. So says Alice Guillaume from the Cambridge Food Hub, who are seeking to put local producers in direct contact with local buyers in Cambridgeshire. So whilst Alex and Lawrence were busy roasting the chicken and cooking the veggies, we took a seat in the dining area with Alice to chew the proverbial fat about food miles. First, Alice cautioned that buying locally isn't necessarily always the greener option. If we do manage to buy British food all year round, it's not necessarily the most sustainable option to buy. For example, if you're buying apples in season, that's great. But in order for you to buy a British apple in the middle of summer, it's had to stayed in chilled storage maybe nine months of the year. The energy that goes into chilling that produce for that many months means that actually the carbon footprint of buying British produce, um, such as apples, uh, out of season is more than if you buy the apples from New Zealand that have come 11,000 miles but have been shipped here. So is what you're saying then, it's a bit too simple to just say fewer food miles is more environmentally friendly. It depends a bit on what you're talking about and when you're talking about it. Definitely. It also depends on how the food is produced. Maybe food has been stored, like the apple example, but if we think about tomatoes, if you're buying tomatoes out of season in the UK, they're grown in artificially heated and lit tunnels, and the carbon dioxide emissions from that method of production are ten times more than if you grow them naturally in Spain and then ship them over to the UK. We're in a county, Cambridgeshire, where there's loads going on in terms of food. How are you seeking to address this issue of it not being, you know, as simple as me, a consumer, going to get some strawberries from the field over the road? Yeah, so having just said that local is better is too simplified, it is still the case that there is a lot more opportunity for us to buy local produce than we currently have. The infrastructure doesn't exist for particularly institutional buyers such as maybe the university or hospitals or schools to buy produce that has been grown very close by. One example is about Cambridge University wanting to buy strawberries from Chivers Farm which is near Histon. Those strawberries are grown about five kilometres away from where they're going to be eaten in the university. However, in order for those strawberries to reach the university, the university has to buy them via London. So overall, they travel about 100 kilometres in order to be eaten just five kilometres from where they were grown. And this is because there isn't that infrastructure in place to do these direct local sales. Sounds nuts, although actually it's fruit we're talking about. Can this be solved, though? Because we've all got hooked onto this, haven't we? This mass distribution, mass efficiency model, rather than one which is focused on sustainability. Yeah, so we get food from all over the world and this has brought massive benefits. We have so much more produce that we can eat. Our diets are way more varied than they were in the past. This has brought nutritional benefits, etc. But it does come with a cost, the environmental impact. We think that we can have a positive impact in terms of making local food systems that cut emissions but allow people to still have very diverse and interesting and nutritionally positive diets. 
so the Cambridge Food Hub, what we're trying to do is to put in those missing bits of infrastructure to allow buyers to directly buy from local producers. But instead of each individually going out in their vehicles and collecting this produce, which is incredibly fuel inefficient, we want to be that efficient distribution network that can go to all these local producers, gather the local produce and then take it to the buyers within Cambridgeshire. But that's very expensive, potentially, isn't it? Because what people really, really shop with is their eye on the price tag. Can you still deliver what people regard as a good Mm -hmm. choice, a sustainable choice, but do it in a way that will compete with what the supermarkets can currently offer you at very low price? That's a really interesting point, because actually, if we think about the price of food that we buy in supermarkets, you get a very low price, but it's not accurately reflecting the environmental cost or the cost to the supplier. We want a food system that is fair. That's one of our core values. And in order to be fair, it has to benefit everyone that's involved in the food system. One of the things that we think we can do in order to make sure that the price isn't massively high is by making supply chain shorter. Going straight from the producer to the buyer, you skip out a lot of middle stages where you have added markup. By making those relationships direct, we hope that consumers will get price that's honest reflection of what it costs and the people that make the food are properly compensated for what they make. Now, you're very, very new. What are you actually doing right now and what are you hoping to do a bit later on? So right now we're really trying to get local producers to join our platform on the Open Food Network where we have a, f- a shop front and we're also getting in contact with buyers, maybe farm shops, local groceries but also we'd love restaurants and cafes to become buyers from the Food Hub as well. So trying to build up that network, get people on our platform and we're starting to do our initial deliveries to these shops. The impacts that we hope to have are reducing emissions. So while saying that food miles is more complex than it originally appears, it is the case that we can cut food miles in certain places. We have electric vans that are charged by photovoltaic panels. The efficiency with which you do the delivery, so planning your routes and making sure that you're not going back on yourself, making sure that all food that goes into our system ends up somewhere where it's valued, whether it's a high-end restaurant or working with charities and stuff that use produce more flexibly. It's going to be really interesting to see how they get on, I think, isn't it? That was Alice Guillaume. She is from the Cambridge Food Hub. The chicken has now been roasting for about 30 minutes, so it should be nearly done. Back in the kitchen, we drilled down into the physics of exactly how the eco-oven, as they're dubbing it, works with inventor Mark Williamson. As you can see, it looks superficially just like any other built-in oven. It's the same size. Uh, It makes the same kind of noises. It's, in fact, plugged into exactly the same kind of electrical supply, a 16-amp supply. And our chicken is cooking away merrily inside and there are some delicious smells emanating if that were a conventional oven how would it be cooking whatever we put into it how does a normal oven work okay well actually the way normal ovens work traditional fan oven is using gently moving hot air that's the fan oven bit of it you may use the grill that's in the top of the oven and you may possibly use a hidden element that's underneath the base of the oven but that's basically it So a conventional oven just cooks for a certain time at a certain temperature. So basically you feed in electricity if it's an electric oven. And that electricity heats up a heating element and the the overall body of the oven getting hot is then transferring heat to the food. Exactly right. That's exactly how it works. So what are you doing that's different? Well, we've got fundamentally different kinds of heating elements in our oven. And our aim has been to get the heat into the food rather than heating up the fabric of the oven. The first heating mode we've got in the oven is infrared heating, and we're using a very different infrared heating to that you would find coming from a conventional oven with a red-hot grill. Infrared heating is in the form of different uh, waves of light, and they're spaced differently apart, and the spacing has very different effects on the food uh, depending on the temperature of the thing that's radiating. So in our oven, we're actually replicating the kind of energy that would come from burning wood. That actually cooks the food differently? Oh, absolutely. The food actually absorbs the infrared radiation very differently depending on that wavelength. So it goes all the way from really not absorbing anything 
in terms of the radiation from a traditional oven to absorbing nearly everything in our oven. And how do you make that different flavour, for want of a better phrase, of infrared? The way you do it is by uh, using a different temperature for the electrical element that's shining brightly. If it's at a much higher temperature, you get a different spacing of the waves. And that's what you're doing, to get, to get them to be a, a tighter spacing so the energy gets in better? Exactly. So when you burn a log of wood in a traditional pizza kiln, actually that flame is at about 2,000 degrees centigrade. The grill in your oven, when it glows red hot, is only at 700 degrees. So what are you doing to make the 2,000 in your oven, then? Well, uh, that's a lot of secret stuff in there, Chris. Uh, (laughs) You're not going to tell me, are you? (laughs) (laughs) But basically, we use very special infrared lamps, which uh, run at a very hot temperature. Got it. So that's the infrared source. What else does this do differently? Okay, so you can see in the oven there, in the base of the oven, we actually have an induction heating system which you will not find in any conventional domestic oven. It's the same technology as induction hobs, which some of you may know about. Basically, it works by having a coil hidden underneath the bottom of the oven, which generates a magnetic field, and that transfers energy into the cooking dish. Why do we want to basically create an induction frying pan in the bottom of the oven? Why is that better? Well, in a traditional oven, actually the amount of heat we can get into the bottom of the food is very limited. By doing it this way, we're able to dramatically increase the the rate at which we can heat the bottom of the food, and we do it in a way that heats the food and not the oven. Is that because when we plonk a chicken in the middle of an oven, we often put it on the middle shelf so that the energy that's coming into it from below is largely coming from the air that's circulating, so there's a, there's a limit on how much energy you can get in. Is that why? Exactly right. And, in fact, if you, if you look at uh, industrial cooking processes, they go out of their way to ramp up the amount of energy going into the bottom so that they can cook good food quickly because time is money when you're doing this thing in an industrial setting. And what else have you got that's a, a special okay. mod con? Convection air, the same. Uh, that's why uh, traditional ovens are called fan ovens. We've got air moving in our oven, but it's moving 50 times faster than in a conventional oven. Why does that matter? Because it transfers heat to the food much more quickly. The last thing we've got in, in there is a, is a really quite sophisticated humidity control system. That actually controls the amount of moisture in the oven, allows us to prevent the surface of certain types of food from drying out. So you're injecting effectively steam into yeah, the Yeah, we have a, a small water reservoir in there. The water's converted to steam, a bit like a, a miniature kettle inside your oven. We think it's a rather clever way of measuring the humidity in the oven, and that then controls the amount of steam that's generated. And we can set a recipe. We can have more at the start and less at the end, whatever we want. How do you know the humidity? Because that's pretty tricky to measure that at oven temperatures. How are you doing that? Well, it is tricky. And in fact, uh, in the context of a domestic appliance, you can't really put sensors in it that need recalibrating regularly because the thing has got to last for 10 or 15 years. So we found a way of measuring the way that the convection fan in the oven is behaving from that information, measuring what the humidity is. Is that because once the steam's in the air, the air's a bit thicker, it's a bit denser, so the fan's working a bit harder to move it, and so you can work out how much work the fan's doing, and that tells you how dense the air is? Well, you're on the right track, Chris. It's actually the other way around. The air is more dense than the steam, and so, in fact, um, the performance of the fan changes to a lower power when you have more steam in the oven. That's what we've patented in this oven. I want to say it's cool, but it's not. It's really hot, and it smells amazing, actually. (laughs) Once this is cooked, how much energy will you have put into that chicken to make it perfect and delicious? And how does that compare to me using my electric oven at home? The first scary thing is that all of these domestic ovens are really, really inefficient. I mean, a typical efficiency for a conventional oven is less than 20%. So the energy you pay for, only about 17% of it actually goes into the chicken. Is that counting the amount of time, and mine seems to take about three hours, the oven takes to actually warm up to the right temperature before I even put my chicken in in the first place? Yes, it is. So uh, the preheat on an oven, I'm not quite sure what's going on with your oven, but on a a typical oven, preheat normally takes about 10 to 12 minutes, something like that, to get to, say, 190 degrees C. Um, So, yes, it does include that. And then it's the time to cook a a chicken. So this chicken would have normally taken an hour and a half in a regular oven, plus 10 minutes preheat, say an hour and 40 minutes. 
But you don't have to preheat this oven, is that right? No, we don't. Basically starts cooking immediately. Within a few seconds, it's at full heat. And then, as I say, in about 35 minutes, we're done. How much do you think a person would save, then? If they installed this in their house, how much energy over a working year are they going to save? Depends on the type of food. But if I had to pick an average number, the test so far would indicate somewhere between 15 and 20% saving on electricity usage. And what fraction of a household energy bill is the oven in, in the average household, people cooking Sunday roast and the evening meal? It's very significant, Chris. Actually, in many households, the built-in oven is the biggest consumer of electricity in the home. So how much am I going to save then if I cook my roast chicken in your oven compared to in my oven? That depends how much you're paying for your electricity. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to put an absolute number on it because of that. But we've worked out that in the lifetime of an oven, we can probably save you more than half the cost of buying the oven. The timer has ticked down to zero. So if you're right, Mark, that chicken, which we put in 35 minutes ago, should be ready to eat. Well, it certainly smells amazing. I'm guessing that needs to rest a little bit. And I heard that we might be having some Yorkshire puddings. As someone from Yorkshire, I'm very excited about this. Most people will tell you that you don't eat meat straight out of the oven. You must let it rest. Typically, 15 minutes is a good amount of time. So we thought we'd use that time to cook some Yorkshire puddings for you. So how long do Yorkshires normally take, and how long will they take in your oven? If we were to pick an average size, a middle size, if there is such a thing, probably about 30 minutes, 35 minutes in a conventional oven. And we're going to do it in about 18 minutes. And we'll find out if those Yorkshire puds live up to expectations shortly. Now, you know you're in smart company when the oven that's cooking your lunch has its own PhD student. Jamie Davidson is a scientist and also an erstwhile Yorkshire pudding maker, and he was also on hand during our cooking test. He comes, though, from a department that has a track record in food-related research forays. My group actually had a PhD in chocolate a few years ago, so, uh, yeah, I'm not completely breaking the mould. <laughs> so you were really doing active laboratory research on this? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm actually looking at uh, optimising some parts of the design. Little things like how big the nozzles are, how many we need for the air jets, how big a fan we need, the position of the infrared lamps, that kind of thing, so that we really get the maximum possible performance out of the general design. How do you actually understand what's going on in there, though? Have you got some kind of computer programme that's making measurements and then you can test different things yeah exactly Uh, i build a big model of the oven using a system called computational fluid dynamics Uh, basically you split the thing you're trying to model into tiny little volumes then you can solve all of your equations numerically over those tiny little volumes and the model i'm using has 10 million uh, little cubes and prisms making up the oven Essentially, you're dividing the interior of the oven up into lots of little spaces and considering each of them, solving the problems for what's going on in each one, and then you add them all together to work out what the whole thing would do or is doing. Exactly. How do you know what's going on in each of the volumes, though? We can make sure that the model is accurately capturing reality by devising a bunch of what you call uh, validation experiments. Basically, you have to come up with an experiment where you can directly compare results from the model to results um, from an experiment and minimise the errors of that. And then you can make a decision whether your model is accurate enough or whether you have to make changes. Do you cook things with loads and loads of sensors in each of the bits of thing you're cooking then? So you can work out what's actually going on and then use that to inform how the model works? Uh, So partly we are doing food trials, but food is really complicated. So there would be a lot of different things going on there. You'd have mass transfer from the air in the oven to the food and from the food into the air. You'd have a coupled heat transfer problem where you'd have to be solving equations for a solid and the fluid. That's something that we're interested in, but not something that really makes a good validation experiment. Uh, For validation, you really want to be looking at a single piece of physics and whether the model is actually capturing that single piece of physics. I suppose one bonus of your research is you actually get to eat it. Uh, Yeah, well, thankfully now we're in the restaurant, I can eat it. But unfortunately, back in the lab, it was very depressing because it's not a food-safe lab, so I just had to throw it all away which was devastating, frankly. And not very sustainable, given this is all about eating and cooking with a conscience. Exactly, exactly. But thankfully, now we're here in Alex's kitchen, where we can finally uh, enjoy the fruits of our labour. 
Or oh, eat your heart out if you don't get to do a PhD in a fantastic restaurant. Yeah, I know. It sounds amazing. Now, shortly after that, the Yorkshires were ready. So, in the name of science, we tucked into a roast chicken dinner cooked for us by professional chefs. It's a hard life being a naked scientist sometimes, isn't it, Chris? Right, dinner's served. You ready to go? Yeah, we are. Let's I'm sit down and eat. Right, everyone's at the table already. I'm late to this. So we've got chicken, we have sauce, we have amazing Yorkshire puddings, and we have the broccoli. It's all right for a, a midweek lunch, isn't it? This, is, this has come together remarkably well. I'm pretty happy with it. Should we actually taste some? Then we can decide whether or not we're going to give Mark the thumbs up or kick him out the door. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you sticking the temperature probe in there because mm. obviously in, in a commercial premises like this, you've got to be really careful about food safety because of infections so on salmonella, campylobacter and so on that you can get from poultry. So we, we removed the chicken from the oven when it was uh, core, what we call coring, core temperature of 75 degrees, and then it continues to rise up. So you you're looking at, uh, for chicken, probably around about 80 degrees for, for it to be fully safe to eat, but, or 75 degrees for a number of minutes. And that was after fewer than 35 minutes in the oven, which if that were a conventional oven, how hot would a cold chicken in a get-go have got to after 35 minutes? Uh, I think you're looking at probably about 20, 25 degrees below that point. There was no way that you could eat a chicken that had been roasted in a conventional oven for that amount of time after 35 minutes. Katie looks like she's going to murder someone if you don't give her some chicken quite soon. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Solve that problem. Thank you very much. Are you confident, Mark? You're looking quite confident over there. Um, I'm always worried, but I'm actually secretly confident, I think, because we've done it once or twice before. Yes. <laughs> The gravy's coming, Katie, don't worry. We're, we're going we're gonna to get to you soon, don't worry. Mark, whilst the gravy's getting dished up, what else have you cooked in this oven? What do you know it can cook? And are there any things it can't cook? We started off trying to cook the perfect pizza. Our pizzas are uh, charred on the bottom, which you just cannot do in a conventional oven. I don't know, I'm quite good at that sometimes, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, nicely charred on the bottom, nicely charred. We can do nice pizzas in about seven or eight minutes versus 30 minutes in a conventional oven uh, with the nice base to them. Uh, We're confident about chicken and similar uh, sort of larger food items. Yorkshire puddings we've done. And the work continues. I mean, Alex and uh, Lawrence have got their work cut out now to, to cover the full range. I'm just going to get some of this sauce, if that's all right. Oh, go on then. Yeah. Let's tuck in. Yes, cheers, yes please. Cheers. <laughs> Any good, Katie? Um, I think this is the best chicken I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Cooked by a master chef as well. No, this. <laughs> It's got a mouthful, so that's a good sign if the, if the chef has a mouthful. I think the results, they speak for themselves, really, don't they? The chicken is still super juicy. Because we're reducing the cooking time, we're reducing the moisture loss from the chicken. So all those juices that might otherwise be lost to the, to the oven, they stay in the chicken because it's only cooking for 30, 35 minutes. Um, and, you know, I think, it's a, I think it's a superb roast chicken. Do you think, would you serve that up to Greg Wallace? Would, would, would he pass muster on that do you think i think greg would be delighted with that (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna have some i'm very jealous everyone else is tucking in okay mark i believe you now okay thank you chris thank you (laughs) (laughs) there's a number of different things that you can do with it that you just simply can't do with other ovens the the induction plate in the bottom opens up a whole plethora of different techniques that you can use and ways that you can start out the cooking process in different fashions we're trying to come up with, the, with new recipes for it and, and bits and bobs, and there's just so much stuff that we're thinking of that we can try and do with it. Do you think it would change the way that we cook at home, then? Absolutely. It's going to change how, how often people do it because of how much quicker it is. I think it's, uh, it's going to change the quality of the meals that people are able to produce at home. And what me and Alex are trying to do, finding recipes specifically used for it, it's going to change you know, how easy it is for people to replicate the same things that we're doing at home. Do you know, I'm going to raise a toast to Mark's oven because it's one thing to come out and make a damn good radio programme. It's another when you actually get fed and, and it tastes absolutely delicious. Cheers, Mark. Cheers. Thank you. Chris, I've just realised we've been cooked this delicious meal. Does that mean we have to do the washing up? Oh, yeah. Have you invented a new dishwasher yet, Mark? Well, so the oven actually helps you with the washing up as well. <laughs> We have a, a water canister in the top of the oven, and if you preload it with cold water, 
it captures all the heat from the vent gases in the oven, and at the end of your cooking cycle, you'll have hot water to do the washing up with. There you go, Katie. Who's paying? Yeah, we we should have talked about that before we came. Well, we'll argue about the washing up later, Katie, and who's paying the bill. But that's inspired me, of course, to try a few new recipes in my own kitchen. I hope it has you too. Thank you very much to Mark Williamson, to Alex Rushmer, Lawrence Butler, Alice Guillaume and Jamie Davidson. Katie put the programme together. That's it for this week. Next time, we're going to bring you a special programme from the Edinburgh Science Festival, which has just been happening, including our meeting with the scientist who created Dolly, the clone sheep. For more from the Naked Scientists, head to our website, nakedscientist.com. You can follow us on social media, we're at Naked Scientists, and why not leave us a review? Wherever you get your podcasts, we would love to hear from you. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, this is The Naked Scientists. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.